Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. A couple of things just briefly. Uh, there is a sign-up in the lobby. If you are interested in helping the Higginbotham family move in uh, and don't want to text me or just easier for you to sign up on a piece of paper, there is one out there. Just put your number so that we can text you in the afternoon, let you know when they're coming and the address of their home so that you can help with that. Uh, that's in the lobby. Uh, also, we've sent out on the email uh, for the last couple of weeks, uh, if you are interested in helping teach Sunday school, especially to our children, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we are, our adult classes, we do 10-week segment classes, and we're looking at doing the same within our kids. And so it would be a 10-week commitment. Uh, you're welcome to do 15 if you like, or the whole year, uh, but that would just be based on your availability uh, and uh, the availability of that class. And so if you are interested at all, uh, in teaching our children in Sunday school, uh, please come see me. We would love to begin that conversation and see if that would be a good fit. I do want to share some difficult news this morning. I asked Bobby if I should share it before they came or not, and he said it would be better for us to share now so that when they come, you know. Um, this past Monday, the mom for Prince uh, her lawyer put in uh, a demand that Prince be given back to the mom immediately. Their goal was that Monday night, Prince would have gone home with the mom. And uh, if any of you are familiar with the story, Prince is three years old, and he's been with the Higginbothams since he was six or seven months. Uh, the mom has never been in the picture other than giving birth to him. And uh, he was in a foster care uh, home before the Higginbothams brought him home. And he was the first child they've ever brought home in the foster system and have grown quite uh, adept to having him and loving him in their home. Their hope was to adopt him. And then just a few months ago, mom came back into the picture. And uh, so their goal they've known all along is to love them and to be able to let them go and what is best. And hopefully, generally, going back to mom is best. And so their prayer is that this might be the case. And yet the idea of having him go home right away was going to be excruciating. So the judge said, no, not tonight, but in three weeks. And so we're one week in, and in two weeks, most likely around Labor Day weekend, Prince will go back home to be with, or will not go back home, but will go to be with his mom. And so I want you to know, so that you can be praying, that the pastor that we're bringing in is grieving, and that he and his family are mourning a loss that will occur here in just a couple weeks. And uh, so if you think about them as you're thinking about them moving in, uh, know that they are no doubt moving in with great joy and with great sadness as well. And uh, so we will be praying, and uh, I will pray right now uh, for them and uh, for our time in the Word this morning, and uh, then we'll open the Scriptures in Matthew 27. Would you join me as we pray? Our God and Father, it is so appropriate that you led our brother Mark to read from Psalm 139, that you know us intimately, you know all of these scenarios, you are not surprised by any circumstances, and nothing is outside of your control. For that we are eternally grateful, and all of our hope rests on your sovereignty and your goodness. We trust in your faithful character, that you are always good, and that you always do what is right, even if it is extremely hard for us to see how this can come to be in the circumstances. Father, this morning we do pray for Prince, 
We pray that at such a young age, he would be able to comprehend with what he can, what is occurring, and why this is happening. Keep any deceit or maliciousness uh, from him, from his ears, or from being believed. Would you allow him the ability to uh, come together with his mother, if this is your will, and that they would bond well? That, Father, you would provide an an overwhelming grace uh, for her and for her son as they begin this new relationship together. Father, I don't know the mother. I've met Prince a couple times, but we pray that you would, in time, bring him to faith in Jesus. We pray also for his mom, if she is not a believer, that you would open uh, her eyes to the beauty of the gospel, that she would see the love and compassion and care that the Higginbotham's and have had for her son, and she would hear of other things and come to hear the gospel, and that you would show her her need for Jesus, and she would come to believe in him with all of her heart. Father, we do pray for the hearts of Bobby and Kelly, Rylan and Jagan and Hazel, that as they have grown to have this little brother in their home for two and a half years, that you would be comforting them, allowing them time to process and to grieve, allowing them to work through trusting in you, trusting in the processes of the state, what you have and what you have ordained, wrestle with the difficulty of it all, and yet do so in your presence and before your face. You are good, and we trust in you. And we ask for grace for our brother and sister who are grieving, who are also grieving, in a sense, the loss of relationships as they move and are excited to move here, and yet the grieving and the mourning of what was for the last 13 years in Tacoma. And so we pray for grace upon grace in their move and that you would shepherd them here and give them opportunity uh, to be able to um, process through, grieve through, mourn adequately and the emotions that you have granted to us by your good and kind hand uh, that you would also then continue to renew their joy uh, in being here and in seeing how you are leading their family Uh, at this time in ways that are difficult, hard, but good. Father, we do pray that you would continue to be with our time in the word. May we look to your word and see our hope in the resurrection of Jesus. That no matter what may come in the midst of our life and our circumstances, you have raised your son from the dead and you will raise us to newness of life everlasting. And for that, we rest our hope in. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for comforting those in need of comfort. And we ask your blessing on the rest of our time in your word. Help us to have attention for it this morning. Would you feed us and encourage us, rebuke us where necessary, shape us, and continue to work in and through us for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. If you would take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, this morning we'll begin reading in verse 57. As of right now, this is the second to last message that we'll do in the Gospel of Matthew. Next week, we'll look at uh, what is often called the Great Commission. And then the week after that, in the beginning of September, uh, we'll look at the ascension of Jesus. 
Matthew doesn't record it, but other gospel writers do. And I think it's of greater importance than we often neglect to give to it. Uh, And so we'll look at the ascension of Christ there in the first week of September. What would you stand with me? Matthew 27, beginning in verse 57. We'll read down through chapter 28 and verse 15 for our text this morning. The scriptures read, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who, was also, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen. And as he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble." So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. There have been a lot of changes lately. A lot of changes in our church. A number of them. We get phone calls throughout the week on some of the changes that have been made. Good phone calls, but asking, what is the new number again? We changed the phone number. 
of the church because it's now free. We changed the mailing address because we can get mail here at the building. But those are changes, changes of where things are addressed to or who to call and what number. Last week, we had the audacity to change the name of the church. So many changes, and people deal differently with changes. Some are excited and rejoice with change. Some are sad and wish that it wouldn't change. My mom's phone number for the longest time was always the phone number I grew up with. I can still remember it to this day, but it changed. I don't know her phone number anymore, but my phone does. Some of us grieve over these changes, and some have mixed reactions to them. The Rexingers are experiencing great change. They spoke of just this morning. I felt like I might have heard a tinge, uh, a little bit maybe of tears coming from Brett, but I'm not sure. He makes it a joke, and so I'm not sure if he's really going to cry or not. Maybe it should be my goal before he leaves to see if he cries. <laughs> but no doubt there's tears over the change that is coming for their boys, for their grandparents, for the parents, for them, for change of address, for moving, for the excitement of this is what God has been working for the last several years. All of a sudden, it's here. It's incredible. We're so excited that God has brought all these things together to take them to Austria, move them halfway across the world to continue to minister the gospel there, as God has led them to do so. And yet with that great joy comes great sorrow, sadness, moments of grieving. We have a new pastor that's coming to join on staff with myself and our elder team. This is the last week of just us. The last four years, I've been the only vocational paid pastor here. And there is a very real sense of grieving the loss of that relationship, of close, exclusive relationship. When you called the pastor, you talked to me. And I liked that. I liked that. When we met, I got to meet with you, and you got to meet with me, that when you came to talk and ask a question, they would come into my office now they might go to somebody else's office. You might get better advice or better biblical shepherding from another pastor. There's a sense of grieving and yet rejoicing because I am so glad he is coming and being able to come alongside and help our elders as we desire to shepherd the church and equip it for every good work. I have to share you all now. Someone else gets to shepherd and help shepherd you. Someone else might marry your children. Someone else might bury your spouse. They might do a much better job than I do as well. There's moments of grieving and yet rejoicing. There is so much joy at his coming, and yet there's also opportunities, as we've mentioned even for them, of joy and grief mixed together, of holding the two emotions together, a home in an area that they've known for 13 years, that all their kids, that's all they've known is that home in Tacoma. The church that Pastor Bobby, God led him to plant in Tacoma was the church that up until a year ago was all they had known. Friends, church family, neighbors, classmates. 
all within the last week or a couple of weeks to say goodbye and to move and to be excited for here and yet sorrowing for what is there. And yet, as God's people, we come to the scriptures and we desire to be fed by them and we come and we see in the midst of this incredible, incredible event of which Christianity is made up of these massive events in which God interacts with his people, brings his own son, the very son of God, second person of the Trinity, by saying that in no means diminishing who he is, to bring him to take on flesh, to enter into humanity, and then to be crucified and buried And then a few days later to raise him from the dead. All of this mixing within, as we'll see in our text this morning, being able to hold these two significantly different emotions all at the same time. To be able to be sorrowful and yet rejoicing. To be filled with great fear and yet to be able to be rejoicing and filled with great joy at the work that God is doing. We don't always understand what it is that God is doing, and yet we fully trust him, and there's great trust and joy in what he's doing, and yet there can be at the same time weeping. What the resurrection does is it makes possible the ability to this bringing in this newness of life to speak honestly to both of these. What can often happen is in Christian circles, we can begin to glib over the difficulties, as though they're not really difficult. That in God's perspective, all of this is going to be sunshine and unicorns, and it won't. It will be difficult. There will be weeping. There will be hardship and difficulty, broken relationships, arguments, death, separation. And yet, because of the resurrection, there is always hope. In the midst of great fear and difficulty, in the midst of trembling and anxiety, there can be greatest of joy as well. Let us look at our text this morning as we begin to walk through the burial and resurrection of Jesus. Part of this passage is one that we regularly will look at as we come to an Easter season But here this morning, as we're walking through the gospel, looking at the person of Christ, one that we want to begin looking at is his body. Two different ways in which the body of Jesus is cared for that is shown here by Matthew. Matthew's account of the burial and resurrection of Jesus is significantly different in some ways than the rest of the gospel writers. But as we begin looking at verse 57 through the end of chapter 27, verse 66, We'll see two different ways that people care for the body of Jesus. First, we see Joseph. In verse 57, we're introduced to a man named Joseph, who's a rich man from Arimathea. Joseph kindly buries Jesus' body, giving it a more decent burial than typically an executed criminal would receive. A much greater, more dignified burial, for sure. The specifics that Matthew and other gospel writers give show a great deal of care from Joseph and others and how they handled the body of the Lord. It is such a contrast to the way that he was put on the cross. The soldiers handled him roughly, beat him horribly, nailed him to a wooden beam, and cared not for his body. 
These men cleaned him, wrapped him, put spices all over him. John's gospel records that it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who prepared the body of Jesus with spices weighing 75 pounds. They buried him properly with dignity and respect and the custom of the Jews. They placed him in a new garden tomb like a rich person. John 19, verse 38 says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away the body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night for fear of the Jews, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So these took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one yet had laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. It is interesting to note that Jesus was secretly, Joseph, excuse me, was secretly a follower of Jesus teamed up with Nicodemus, who also was afraid to openly come to Jesus with questions. Mark 15 states that Joseph was a respected member of the Sanhedrin, or the council, and that he was also looking for the kingdom of God. But he took courage, and he went and he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave it to him. And what generosity and care was shown to Jesus' body by those who were a part of the very group who put him to death. Both Nicodemus and Joseph, a part of a body who were the ones who declared he was guilty and must be crucified, who convinced the Romans to put him to death and yet who showed immense care for his body. We have the two Marys who go to the tomb and see where Joseph has laid Jesus. They would have known where he was on Sunday morning when he was raised from the dead. They would have known where to go. This is one way in which his body was treated. But the second way is that you have the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders who the very next day after Joseph takes care of Jesus' body and buries it, come to Pilate again. Joseph went to Pilate. Now the Jewish leaders go to Pilate. For the second day in a row, Pilate is being asked about the burial preparations and arrangements for this Jesus. This time, it's the religious leaders who should have cared about the body of Jesus, the Messiah, but who, in fact, are the ones who put him to death. They are not concerned for the body of Jesus, but instead, they are concerned for their reputation about the person that Jesus claimed to be. They didn't want somebody coming and stealing his body, acting as though he was raised from the dead. They called him an imposter or deceiver. The Jewish leaders do not think Jesus will rise from the dead. He was a fraud to them but they do believe the disciples might just be crazy enough to steal his body and cause quite an uproar among the people. However, noting the character and actions of the disciples upon the death of Jesus, it doesn't seem likely that the disciples have it in them as they ran away when Jesus was arrested, as most of them were not at all present at his crucifixion. We haven't heard or seen from Peter, the leader, since the night he betrayed Jesus. 
They were frightened, filled with fear, and they ran. But the Jewish leaders had waited. The body at that time could have been stolen already. Somebody else could have taken it. But they were concerned for the reputation. This account here of Matthew is unique to him alone. As he speaks of the religious leaders and their desire to trouble Jesus and his reputation. They desire to trouble Christianity as Matthew records that this lie that the Jewish leaders pass on continues until the present day. Pilate either gave them a Roman guard to watch the tomb or states that they themselves have their own temple guards and they can set their own guard, but they have permission to guard it and seal it so that no one can get in or out. Because of the seal on the stone, because Pilate has given permission, if somebody were to rob the grave now, it would be an illegal action worthy of imprisonment or maybe even death. The Jewish leaders probably leave Pilate feeling quite confident that this imposter Jesus is certainly this action and his reputation will be shut up once and for all. And in a few days, it will all quiet down. Hear no more of this person. Their care was not for his body and his person, but for their own reputation. The burial of Jesus is not to be overlooked. He died and was buried, and it's something that both the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed that we've been reading in recent months mentions the fact of his burial. It's significant to remind us that Jesus actually died. In all this, these two scenes have one strange similarity to them, and that is the fact that Pilate is addressed in both. Pilate, the governor who's hoping by putting Jesus to death or allowing them to put him to death, that he can be done with this Jesus. Remember, he washes his hands of the whole circumstance. Here's Pilate, now all of a sudden brought back into this one that now the Jewish leaders are saying he claimed he would raise from the dead three days later. I can just imagine if you're Pilate and you made a decision to put this one to death thinking, oh, they, he thinks he's a prophet or the son of God. Wonderful. Put the man to death. And now all of a sudden, there's preparations being made because he said he was going to raise from the dead. And the days are getting closer to that time, which he said. Maybe for Pilate's own protection of his reputation. Yes, yeah, seal that tomb. We don't want this person getting out. And the dreams that his wife had the night before coming true. Pilate is dealing with his own reputation. Pilate has to be thinking, I thought we were done with this Jesus. He was already put to death. And yet here come the Jewish leaders asking that they might be able to take his body and to seal the tomb in which he was laid. Two responses to his body and also two multiple, excuse me, different responses to his resurrection. Notice as we begin in verse 28, looking at the resurrection of Jesus. When I was reading this past week, a statement came up that was striking to me. As one author said that no writer writing in the first century ever speaks, whether they're a Christian author or not, no writer writing in the first century ever speaks of Jesus remaining in his tomb that they always speak and always write of the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth being empty. 
Now, the means for that can be multiple, I'm sure, but nobody ever speaks of Jesus still remaining in his tomb. There's always an empty tomb within the stories recounting historically the actions. The death of Christ for sinners was the whole mission of Jesus, the whole reason that he came. But it's the resurrection that is the climax of the whole gospel, the greatest miracle that is performed, the event that causes the death of Christ to actually save us. At the cross, Jesus took on himself all of our sins. But if the resurrection did not occur, then in reality, Jesus didn't. And he wasn't the Son of God. He thought he did. He thought he would be taking away sins, but apart from the resurrection, he would be unable to do so. He would have been an imposter or a fraud. But the resurrection vindicates Jesus' life and his work, as 1 Timothy chapter 3 states. It vindicates him. In reality, Jesus is the Savior of sinners because God raised him from the dead. And yet, as glorious as the resurrection of Jesus is from the dead, as necessary as that event is for our salvation, not all who saw it respond the same way in Matthew's gospel. You have several different responses. Notice in the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 28. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, I don't know, that seems kind of, I feel like you should get a little bit more respect here in the story. But several times, Matthew just calls her the other Mary. So there she is. We'll call them the Marys. Went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. The angel that comes and descends from heaven and sits on the stone will verify that what has happened is Jesus was raised from the dead. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are heading to the tomb as the new day is dawning. The death of Jesus has seen intense darkness, if you remember from last week. But now, as a new day dawns and the light breaks through, the new day that gives birth from this point on to a new and wonderful creation where dead people are brought to life has come. And the broken is made new in Christ. And God shows this by means of an earthquake. Give me a second. Didn't he have an earthquake when Jesus died just a couple of days ago? There's an earthquake just a few days ago when Jesus dies back in Matthew 27, verses 51 through 53. We see the earth shook and the rocks were split. Remember reading, the tombs were open and the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And verse 53 says, and coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So here we have these earthquakes, these bodies being raised, all after Jesus' resurrection. There is an earthquake, and the text says a great one, or as the NIV states, a violent earthquake. Imagine these two ladies. We see this scene in our mind. These two ladies are walking, grieving towards the tomb, probably maybe in mourning clothes, and you just... I imagine this morning walking in your sandals and there's dew on the grass and you're sad and you're weeping and it's quiet and it's morning and nobody's quite awake yet. Imagine quite a very different scene 
If there's a violent earthquake on your way to go visit somebody in their tomb where they've died, and when they died, there was a violent earthquake and the rocks split. All of a sudden, putting these two together, God loves to write with these bookends, right? And so if you have this one bookend with when he died, the rocks split, and it's all of a sudden they're walking to the tomb, and an earthquake happens, there's a part of you going, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? The last time it was horrible, he died, but the rocks just split again. If there's two earthquakes, all of a sudden we are really standing in this place where God is making it clear that something miraculous, something huge is happening. Matthew seems to give, if you notice the text says, that the cause of the earthquake is because the angel of the Lord descends from heaven. It says there in verse 2, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. The angel sitting on the stone as a sign of victory, not in a battle stance. And you notice that the text says his garments were like lightning and shone like the sun. What the con- quite the contrast from when Jesus has died. Jesus dies and all is dark. Here we have all is illuminated, clothes like lightning. They are shining. And remember the angels attended the birth of Jesus back in Matthew chapter 1. They attended the birth of Jesus with a great star that shone in the night sky. Again, here at this event of great rejoicing of God showing his pleasure at the work of his son, at the rebirth, in a sense, of his son. He uses nature and angels, great lights to announce his message. And the angel, in his proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus, speaks to the women and tells them not to be afraid. The angel also told Mary to not be afraid when he came and spoke to her of the baby that she would soon be giving birth to, who would be the Son of God. And as the angel comes and tells the women not to be afraid, he says it is because Jesus is no longer dead but he has been raised. The angel speaks of the resurrection in a passive way, that Jesus did not raise himself from the dead, but he was raised. The ESV would be better to read, he has been risen, not he has risen, as though he has done it himself, but it was done by God to him. It's passive. And here we see this event happening that Jesus was raised The angel comes and vindicates, speaks this message of proclamation about the resurrection. We notice another response, though, if you read in the narrative. You have these soldiers that are there. If you remember, back in the previous paragraph, you had the soldiers who were being put there by Pilate, said, sure, go ahead. You have soldiers. Go put them there. All the time, you're going, well, where are the soldiers? What role do they play? They don't play much of a role. If you notice, as the text says, when the angel comes and descends upon the stone and sits on it, verse 4, the response of the soldiers, and for fear of him, the angels, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And that's it. That's their response. In the midst of all of this, the soldiers are there to stand to guard the tomb. Pilate authorizes them. They're there. They've got swords and armor, shields. 
the angel comes and they fall over. Overcome with fear, they have, as the text literally says, the word trembling is the same root word as earthquake. In a sense, the guards are having a mini earthquake of their own and become paralyzed, pass out, something to appear like dead men. They're immobilized, unable to do anything for the moment. They'll do something later, but here they're immobilized. And it stands in stark contrast to the response of the women. I just think it's fascinating what Jesus does here in the last several chapters in the role that he gives to women. The way in which we're showing a change that is coming and the way most likely that women are seen in that time, but also here in the role that women have in this care and faithfulness to Jesus. But if you notice the scene here, the soldiers fall down and faint. They have their own trembling, but the women don't. These tough soldiers fall over as dead. And the women, the angel says, do not be afraid. The response of the soldiers would be very understandable and probably would happen to most of us, if we're honest. We see a scene like this, an angel in radiant clothing come down, roll a huge rock out of the way and sit on it. We're probably all falling over. Most of us would understand this if we came face to face with an angel and an earthquake all at the same time and a body being raised from the dead. However, what really stands out is that the soldiers fall over as though dead and Mary's don't. The angel speaks to the women, tells them not to be afraid. And not only does he encourage them to not be afraid, but he gives them a reason for great rejoicing. And the reason the angel is there, the reason for the earthquake, the reason that the tomb is open is all because Jesus, who had been killed, is now alive. It has drastically changed this whole scene of one of great sorrow to now one of great fear and joy. And on top of that, the angel gives the women a mission. They are to come and see the place where Jesus lay and is no longer there. And then they are to go and tell what they have seen. Come and see and go and tell. He's telling them to be firsthand witnesses. Don't be afraid, he says at first, but be comforted by the truth of what I tell you and what you see. And then go and encourage others with this great news. And on top of all of that, as if it's not enough to hear that Jesus has been raised from the dead, he tells them that they will see Jesus again, that Jesus is going to Galilee to meet them. Can you imagine their response? Can you imagine? It would be similar to us, and the ladies do exactly what all of us would have done, and that is to run out and with great joy go tell all of our friends. But Matthew records their emotions here, which is fascinating. In verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. He mentions the fear of the soldiers. He mentions the angels telling the women to not be afraid. But here he states that the women depart the tomb with fear and great joy, both emotions at the same time. Mark states it similarly, but with different words, when he says in Mark 16, verse 8, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. How wonderful. They recognized with fear that this is not normal, 
an angel sitting on a rock, an empty tomb, and going to meet up with the risen Jesus. And yet it is so wonderful that they run and skip and leap with joy. Their joy is mixed with fear and trembling. In their exit, they run into Jesus himself, Matthew records. And he greets them with a simple greeting of hello and speaks words of comfort to them, telling them to not be afraid. They fall to the ground as they take, care, take hold of his feet and worship him. John's gospel shows more of the weeping of Mary as she meets Jesus in the garden, but both accounts show the compassion he has for the women. And Jesus echoes the words of the angel, don't be afraid, but go and tell my brothers, not the disciples, but he uses the word brothers to meet me in Galilee. He doesn't shame them from being, for being afraid. He doesn't tell her her fear is misplaced and that they need to trust him more. But the reason she cannot be afraid in all of these events is because he is with her. He has risen and joy has come. The light has dawned and a new day is here. The last response to the resurrection is the religious leaders, as given in verses 11 through 15. So while the Marys go to tell the disciples, the soldiers, who must have gotten back up off of the ground at this point, go and tell the religious leaders. The guys who put Jesus to death, who really wanted to make sure the tomb was secure, are the ones that they come and tell. And the reaction of the religious leaders, those who know the Old Testament scriptures the best, is staggering. It's not to throw up their hands and repent for their mistaking Jesus' identity. When all of a sudden it's, you have got to be kidding me. He rose from the dead. Guys, this is clearly the Messiah. They don't do that. But instead, they put their foot down even further. They grind in their heels. We are going to stay on this narrative. Instead, they decide to pay the soldiers money to spread lies about Jesus. No, we know you saw this, but here's a whole handful of cash to go tell people you saw what we're going to tell you you saw. They hear the firsthand account of the witnesses and tell them to not tell people what they really saw, but instead tell a lie. Just as the women were given a mission regarding the resurrection, so also the soldiers were given a mission. The women were moved in their mission by worship and joy, obedience to both Jesus and the angel. But the soldiers were motivated by money or fear. And even until the time of Matthew's writing, he states, the lie is still being circulated. So with the incredible fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that one who was verifiably dead in the tomb for three days was now raised was seen here, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, by 500 plus people. And we can stop here now and stand in awe of all that God has done and the way that he has chosen to redeem us and stop and say with great joy that he has risen. He has risen indeed, and this is wonderful. And it is. And yet I think we find in this narrative of Matthew application even for us Christians this morning, that might have otherwise, at least it did for me, caught me by surprise. In this whole narrative that we're looking at, there were two constants. While not our application, there were constants that I saw. And one is that God does whatever he wants, 
no matter if people do everything they can to try and stop him or if they don't believe in him. He's going to do whatever he decides to do. He's God, and he won't be changed in his will. And number two is that these women, Mary and the other Mary, are faithful women. They were there at the cross. They were there when the bodies were laid in the tomb, being wrapped. They were there when Jesus had, the word had been given from an angel that he had been raised from the dead. These women, although certainly not perfect, though redeemed, are faithful. Some application for us this morning. One, the resurrection of Jesus, as I've been alluding to and mentioned in the beginning, allows us to hold emotions in their rightful place without becoming overwhelming or fake. A few weeks ago, we got a new puppy. I don't know why. I'm just kidding. I do. She's about six months old and, of course, full of life. But when we went to get her, the family who was having to rehome her was very sad. One of the girls was crying. They were teary-eyed. They were wanting to take a last picture. But we were there with full of joy, very excited, and yet sort of holding it back because we were mixed with the sorrow of their loss. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, I can experience the fullness of grief over the loss of a loved one because I know that this is not their final end to them. In Christ, I can grieve with great intensity knowing that God is the one who is sovereign over all and that this person in Christ is now living in light of the resurrection, has been raised to newness of life for all of eternity. And yet I can still grieve with great intensity the loss while mingling with that the joy that is theirs in Christ. If the person who has lost, been lost is not a Christian, then I can also grieve with great intensity that they would not repent, that they did not repent and turn to Jesus, but that they had every opportunity to do so, that God was faithful, that God gave them opportunities of hearing the gospel and to be able to respond to it. And while I can grieve that their life now is not being raised to newness of life, I can with great joy Rejoice in the faithful goodness of God in the midst of great sorrow. That God has given an opportunity for salvation. That Jesus went to the cross for us, was crucified and dead, buried, and now resurrected. And that opportunity was made available for them to respond to. Because Jesus rose from the dead, I can face fears and sadness with appropriate levels of fear and sadness, without throwing up my hands, thinking all is lost forever, without losing my head and giving in to my fears completely, without trying to act tough as though nothing can touch me, or without having to succumb to telling myself to be like Daniel and jump in the pit of lions, or to be like Jonah and pray while you're in the belly of a fish. 
That's certainly not why the Old Testament was given to us. Only to make examples of how to face fears and difficult decisions in life. Or as some moralistic example. But you see, if there is no resurrection of Jesus, then there is no real sliver of hope at all in God that he will or could help me in any circumstance that I find myself in. All the hope that I have All the hope that I would have, apart from the resurrection, is in my own training, my own smarts, my own stockpiling of supplies, or in the hope that my death would be as quick and painless as possible. If God could not save his own son from the grip of death, then what can he possibly do for any one of us at any moment or circumstance we find ourselves in? But because Jesus has been risen from the dead, I know that God Almighty has already begun the process of making all things right. Also, that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was accepted, that God has forgiven me of my sins, and I am, as we mentioned last week, at peace with God. And if death has been defeated, then I should not ultimately fear death or the things that could bring it about. Sorrowful and yet rejoicing fearful, and yet full of joy. We mentioned the Higginbothams are moving here today. While we are very glad that they are here, there will be friends who are coming with them from Tacoma who will be grieving their loss, grieving that they are leaving. We can be joyful and yet sad for their friends at their loss. They can be sad and grieve the loss of this family but also rejoice at how God has led them to be here. The resurrection allows us, because of the hope that there is now in Christ for those who are in him, it allows us to sit honestly before the face of God, seeking comfort in our affliction and sadness, all while singing with joy in his presence at the same time. Saints can sing of great joy of all that God has done for them while tears run down their face and hold both emotions at the same time without needing to be glib or giving Christian cliches for any of it. Changes, as we mentioned, can be very difficult and people respond to them differently, but they can be incredibly good and wonderful things. We can laugh at small changes that we make to our address or phone number, But for some, those things do create a little bit of difficulty. And there's an opportunity for us to be able to give grace to others in the midst of their difficulties, in the midst of their changes and emotions, holding those because God has already worked in light of the resurrection to grant us hope and grace in light of the big picture, not just in the small milieu of things that come in our life. Secondly, Jesus does not hold our sins against us and refuse to welcome sinners back into his good graces. Notice that when Jesus is raised from the dead, he speaks to the Marys and he says to them, go find my brothers and speak to them this message that I have been raised and I will see them in Galilee. They all deserted him and he has come back for them. Not only does he show himself as still loving and accepting those who had abandoned him, 
but he even treats them as equals. In other words, they remain laborers with him in the work of the Father. Jesus is neither, as one author says, denying his uniqueness nor deifying the disciples, but he is portraying the church as a brotherhood that manifests more equality than hierarchy, hierarchy, even if some functional differentiation between leaders and followers is clear from other scriptures. But he refers to them as brothers. He doesn't hold the sins that they had done against them and refuse to welcome them back. There is no sin that you as a believer can commit that keeps Jesus from receiving you back into his good graces. You are already in his good graces, as we mentioned last week. Your sins have already been taken care of, already been forgiven, as far as the east is from the west, even the ones you have yet to commit. And with joy, we return back to him, worshiping him, falling as the ladies did at his feet, and seeing the grace of the resurrection and that we will experience and are experiencing now even new life because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And that leads us to number three. Because Jesus has raised from the dead, the harvest has already started. The resurrection started the harvest. And even though the fulfillment of that harvest of souls to be raised with God forever is separated now by 2,000 years, the new cosmos, the new world in which God is creating and bringing to his people is already on its way and has indeed already begun. If you can imagine a farmer working on a field he begins in one part doing the harvest. Well, the other far corner of the field, it might take him a couple hours or days to get to, depending on the size of the field. But if Jesus is the first fruits of those who will be raised, then he is already, in a sense, part of that field that has been harvested. And he's been brought into newness of life, a newer and glorious life than he had had earlier on earth. He is the first fruits of the harvest. And the rest of the field knows it will be harvested soon because the, it has already started. The season has already come. Jesus even said 2,000 years ago, the field is already white unto harvest. You don't start harvesting. You pray as God brings about the harvest. But Jesus comes as the first fruit of the harvest. It is sure. Again, one author, John T. Rhodes, writing says, his case is not so much that God this, did this once so he can do it again. He resurrected Jesus so he can resurrect you. But it's more than that. It is Christ is the first fruits of the one harvest. And our resurrection is certain because they are inseparably linked to Jesus. There is only one harvest. There is only one field. Albeit the first and the last fruits are gathered thousands of years apart, Christ is the guarantee that the whole new cosmos is on its way and has indeed begun. The tomb of Christ was the womb of the whole new world. If we can think in terms like that, to be able to see that Christ in his first fruits comes and ushers in this new age of life that begins to shape how we live now, 
So we're not just looking, it's doomsday, folks, of, well, that day is going to come and then it will be life. No, because Christ has been raised, that newness of life is lived right now. Remember your baptism. When you were pulled out of the water, you were buried with Christ, and yet you were raised to newness of life. We didn't say you're raised to newness of life when Jesus returns, then you can enjoy this. But Christ says, even now, brother and sister, you are raised to newness of life. And because he has been raised, the harvest has been started and life, newness of life in God has already begun. This shapes how we view death in Christ. And as we saw, it shapes how we view life in Christ. And we can view death and life with adequate grief and sadness and yet rejoicing all at the same time because Christ has raised from the dead. Would you join me in prayer as we thank God for the very fact that he has raised his son from the dead and ask him to continue to apply that to us even this morning. Our Father, we are so thankful that as we read the narrative of Jesus given here in Matthew, that we do not read of a story that ends with a tragic death and nothing more. It would be a bestseller if it ended there. We would read it and see a tragic ending and wish it would have maybe gone differently. It would still sell. It's a wonderful story told in different ways and all of that, but it wouldn't change our lives. It wouldn't matter much for us today. We'd maybe know some character names and stuff. Maybe a movie would be made, made about it, but Father, your story doesn't end that way. And in fact, your story hasn't ended at all. But the resurrection of Jesus comes in and radically shapes those worshipers, these ladies, Marys, who are there, radically shapes and changes the direction of their lives and the lives of the brothers who will be told in the weeks to come. As we look at your, this text again next week, Father, I pray that we would be overwhelmed with the joy of the resurrection that Jesus was raised to newness of life, and so will we. And just as sure as the sun will rise in the morning, so we too in Christ will rise one day with him to be seated in the heavenlies as positionally we already are now. So we will with joy see him face to face, the risen Christ, the one who came and died, suffered on the cross for our sins, that we might be raised in newness of life forevermore. Father, allow that to transform us even this morning in the way that we view the circumstances that we face, the difficulties, the confusion, the questions of things that are going on, all of these changes, to be able to put them in the perspective of the resurrection, to be able to view them in light of all that you are doing in the space of all of time. Father, would you continue to change us to be a resurrection people who live with the joy of the resurrection, even more this morning going forward than we have when we came in. Father, we pray that you would grant us much grace. And we pray that there might be someone even here this morning who has yet to come to know the resurrected Christ as their Lord and Savior. The Father, even this morning, that they would do just that. Would you continue to minister to their heart, revealing their sin and their need for Jesus, that they would, for the very first time, with eyes wide open, see the resurrected Christ standing there and calling them to himself. 
Would they right now, would they come and when they follow him? We pray this in Christ's name, amen.